From 9 News in Denver, Colorado, this is Blame, an ongoing investigation into a mother's death, her husband's secrets, and the lax police work that put Blame squarely on the shoulders of their six-year-old son. Was the shooting of Jill Wells really an accident? Join 9 Wants to Know in our pursuit to discover, is someone else to blame? A gunshot echoes across a windswept prairie. A young mother dead. Knowing everything you know, we no proof of that we know right. now. An investigation over before it began. That child was innocent. I feel like I failed him too. Gut feelings. Oh man, if I just would have known this a long time there ago. There was a lot of red flags. And an unanswered question. The preponderance of evidence. Oh, I would have done something about this. This really points to a homicide. Was a six-year-old really to blame? More than 30 years before the death of Jill Wells... I was 11 at the time. Vicki Marlene's childhood was shattered... It was shocking. ...when her older brother died in a car crash. And I couldn't believe it. But most unbelievable was that a coroner who wasn't a doctor ruled Leroy Dreis' death a suicide. A conclusion apparently reached after little investigation in a case where there was no autopsy, no detailed interviews, no effort to collect and document evidence, a case where there was immediate suspicion that it was murder, a case with eerie parallels to the death of Jill Wells. And like so many people who cared about Jill, Vicki Marlene is still fighting for the truth about her brother's death. 48 years after Leroy Dry's sedan smashed into a tree in the small northern Colorado town of Mead. We traveled about an hour north of Denver to talk with Vicki at her home, northwest of the farm where she grew up with three brothers. Uh, Leroy was the oldest, then I had a brother Doug, then myself, and a younger brother John. I'm the only girl, and I was treated special by him. <laughs> oh, he was big and strong, and um, I can remember him you know, irrigating, carrying me on his shoulders just so I would be with him. And, you know, he would be bending over and, you know, doing the inner tubes for the irrigation. And I, I was just thrilled to be with him all the time. So I went to him more than I did my parents. In the spring of 1968, Leroy was 18, seven years older than Vicki. What are your memories like of, of when he died? unbelievable. I just couldn't believe it had happened and it was all so real and so quick. Um, we'd gotten a phone call that evening, you know, um, my mother did and, and then she just told my brother and I, you know, get dressed, get dressed, we have to go and I can remember her being so distraught that, you know, she, and I didn't really know why yet, but she was just so distraught that she couldn't really contain herself and so my brother, I took care of my little brother, got him ready and, you know, held his hands and then was like, you know, I could tell my mom's reactions that this is urgent, just do it, you know. And so then we went to the hospital and um, she, you know, was pretty much away from us and I can just remember being alone and looking and seeing so many of my relatives upset. So it was very, a, a big memory. On the day he died, May 30th, 1968, Leroy spent time at his girlfriend's home in Mead. It's believed there was a dispute. Leroy left her house, drove a couple of blocks, and then slammed into that tree at the entrance to the town school. 
leaving behind 69 feet of faint skid marks. Leroy was dead on arrival in a Longmont hospital. The deputy coroner who investigated spoke with Leroy's girlfriend, apparently by phone. Then he wrote in his report, had left girlfriend's house stating he was going to kill self and not see her again. The next day, you know, I just didn't want to believe it. I'm like, you know, this didn't happen because I was so close to him. I just felt like he would never have done anything to take his own life, which we had read that in the newspaper the next morning. And we were shocked because we hadn't received any, um, any visits from the authorities. They hadn't talked to us. We didn't have any clue that they were coming out with a, an article that said suicide. Plus, it was at the school that I had attended, and I was like, there is no way he would have hurt himself like this, you know, where I go to school. Must have been just a series of shocking things. First, your brothers died, then right. it's a car accident, then you're told it's a suicide. Right, and, and those, that time frame was very quick. You know, and I was, um, I was just in complete denial, really, of it. I just couldn't believe this. And, you know, quickly, we were hearing rumors that it wasn't a suicide. And, you know, I'm young, and I'm trying to just really take it all in. And I knew, somehow I knew, that my, my parents were just too distraught to really pay attention. And so I really was paying attention. I really was listening to people. And there was, you know, tons of rumors that day that it had been murder. So you hear these rumors and you're going through the, you know, you're living your life, you're growing up. How much was it talked about in your family about like what really happened, that kind of thing? It wasn't. Um, the funeral happened and um, you know, at that moment, which had only been like three days later, I knew that I had to take charge and, and really pay attention. And I, I watched details and I've written them down and kept notes. And my mom, um, about two weeks after the funeral, had gone to the um, authorities in Weld County and asked them to investigate the case, you know, because we've heard these rumors and that you know we had no idea that they were going to say auto suicide that they hadn't talked to us um, so anyway she went and asked them and they said you know you're a distraught parent go home and get over it because the coroner had already said auto suicide and so my mom was very distraught and she took all the pictures down we didn't talk about Leroy she just couldn't if you mentioned it she cried she was unable to deal with it at all. So, um, you know, every time on his birthday or, or the date of his murder, you know, it was horrible times in our house. And she would never go on a trip for Memorial Weekend. She was like, I can't celebrate this holiday. And, and so I really had to just keep any of my thoughts to myself. After I've grown up and I've looked back, um, you know, I really wish we all had talked about it. And I wish that, you know, um, teachers and, you know, other ministers and other people would have talked with me, but, but they didn't. That was a different time. It was a different time. But no matter when someone dies under questionable or suspicious circumstances, one thing is always certain. 
Decisions made on the spot can haunt the pursuit of the truth, sometimes forever. In Colorado, state law allows anyone to serve as a county coroner. The law doesn't require a medical degree or any special experience. And coroners are the people whose job it is to decide how and why someone has died. Just as the families of Jill Wells and Leroy Dreith have grappled with suspicions and uncertainties, so have others in a parade of Colorado cases over the years. There was what happened on December 30th, 1978 in Arapahoe County. The call came into the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Office at shortly after 11 a.m. The three had apparently been dead for several hours. Details are still sketchy. This is what we've been able to confirm. Two bodies were found upstairs, a teenage boy and girl, each in their own bedrooms. Their mother was discovered downstairs. A 38 caliber pistol was found some distance from her body. That's 9 News reporter Nancy Montoya at the scene that day 38 years ago. Reporting on the deaths of Nancy Spangler and her teenage children, David and Susan. Police are now looking for the father, but no one seems to have any idea where he is. Neighbors we talked with say they didn't hear anything throughout the night that sounded like gunshots. Police say they're confused. They speculate the murders were made to look like a murder-suicide, but many of the facts simply don't fit. They're not saying just yet what those facts are. I think we're looking probably at a, maybe a straight homicide or possibly a homicide-suicide. Is it just too early to tell so far? It's too early to tell. The Arapahoe County coroner at the time, Dr. John Wood, conducted autopsies. But if he ever wrote reports, he didn't save them. He mistakenly concluded that hemorrhaging on Nancy Spangler's hand could have been caused by recoil from a pistol. He discounted the discovery of that pistol five feet away from Nancy Spangler's body. And he discounted the fact that she was shot in the head from an intermediate range, several inches away. Highly unusual in a suicide. And four days after the deaths, he ruled that Nancy had committed suicide, shooting herself after murdering her children. And Nancy's husband, the one no one could immediately locate? His name was Robert Spangler. He changed key details of his story in the days after his wife and children died. But it didn't matter. Despite suspicions, the case was eventually closed. Then, in the mid-1990s, after his second wife apparently committed suicide and his third wife plunged to her death at the Grand Canyon, authorities reopened the investigation of those 1978 shootings. In the fall of 2000, Spangler was questioned by investigators. By then, he'd been diagnosed with terminal cancer, and he admitted that he killed his first wife and son and daughter in 1978 in Arapahoe County and shoved his third wife off a cliff at the Grand Canyon. He denied killing his second wife, and it was ultimately determined to actually be a suicide. Mr. Spangler, is there anything you'd like to say? In the fall of 2000, Spangler was charged with four counts of murder. He died without ever standing trial. This is a suspicious death. There was the 1977 death of Barbara Yoklich, the wife of a flamboyant Pueblo police officer, Dennis Yoklich. A coroner ruled that she suffered a reaction to a diet pill at age 35, that the lacerated liver and two liters of blood in her belly were the result of Dennis Yoklich's energetic resuscitation efforts. Everybody remembers Dennis Yoklich. Eight years after Barbara's death, the Pueblo narcotics detective was gunned down by teenage hitmen hired by his second wife. Donna Yoklich alleged years of violent abuse at his hands, alleged that he often told her one day they'd find her the way they found Barbara. 
Donnie Yoklich was eventually convicted of conspiracy and sent to prison. And then in 2005, authorities reopened the investigation into Barbara Yoklich's death, a move that came after two forensic pathologists studied documents in the case and raised questions. Both coroners are of the belief that this manner of death is best considered homicide based on the information provided in the original autopsy report. That's Steve Johnson of the Colorado Bureau of Investigation announcing the results of that new inquiry and hinting that Dennis Yoklich conspired with the coroner to make sure no one looked into Barbara's death. The coroner performs an autopsy at the request of Dennis Yoklich, and his concerns appear to be to find an end with no further law enforcement involvement. February 14th of 1977, there is only one report from law enforcement and it's lacking in substance. We have seen better documented traffic accidents. In the end, however, the original investigation of Barbara Yoklich's death was so badly botched that investigators who reopened it 28 years later could not say anything more than that it was suspicious. Then there's the case of Harold Henthorne. In 1995, Henthorne and his wife were driving near Sedalia when he stopped because he thought one of his Jeep's tires was low on air. At least that's what he claimed. Henthorne turned away a motorist who offered to help and set about changing the tire. And then the couple's Jeep fell off the jack and crushed Lynn, apparently as she crawled under the vehicle to grab a lug nut that had skittered away. A coroner ruled it was an accident, and Douglas County law enforcement officers agreed. Then, in September 2012, Henthorne's second wife, Tony, fell off a cliff in Rocky Mountain National Park. There was big life insurance involved in both cases. $500,000 in his first wife's death, $4.5 million in the second. And in 2012, authorities suspected Tony Henthorne's death was no accident. Three years later, a federal court jury convicted Harold Henthorne of murdering her. We think that Another, a life has been saved by, by this verdict. That was Tony Henthorne's brother, Barry Bertolet, speaking outside the federal courthouse in Denver following the conviction, expressing hope that Harold and Tony Henthorne's daughter would never have to worry about her father hurting her. I think the way that Harold viewed women is that they were property. I don't think that he ever viewed them as, as people. And when he had gotten what he needed out of them, they were discarded. We think the perfect place for him is in a prison where he can continue to tell his stories and um, hang out with murderers, thieves. And liars. And liars. Harold's love was lethal. If you uh, got married to him, you probably would be the next one. The death of Lynn Hemthorne was reopened, but it may have been too late for justice. Although the Douglas County coroner changed the manner of her death from accident to undetermined, it's not clear at this point whether investigators will ever develop enough evidence to file charges in the case. I think that's the most disturbing aspect of this, is the cases that we talk about are likely the tip of the iceberg. And unfortunately, not just in Colorado, but I think in, in the whole country, uh, worldwide, um, mistakes get buried and we never really find out what happened. You, 
take someone's word for something. Dr. Mike Doberson performed the autopsy on Jill's body after it was exhumed in 2008, was one of the experts consulted in Barbara Yachlich's case, and was heavily involved in the new investigation into the deaths of Nancy Spangler and her kids. I think it was Alfred Hitchcock that said the perfect crime is committed every day. We just never hear about it. And uh, unfortunately, that happens. For years, Leroy Dreis' family believed that is exactly what happened, and eventually they decided to do something about it. How did it come to be then that, that your family decided to pursue a proper investigation, you know, more than 20 years later? Well, I grew up and moved out of town and got married. When I came back into town, I really just picked a day and I went over to Boulder um, to the vital records to get his death certificate because I didn't have that and I knew I couldn't bring it up to my mom. You know, she'd still be too upset and I didn't even know if she had it. So um, I picked a day and I went to Boulder to the vital records. I didn't call prior so that it would be a, you know, a total new thing, you know. And I, so anyway, I, I went over there and um, asked for his, his death certificate, and they brought it to me and they said, but we would like you to speak to a detective. Completely shocked me. And so at that point, um, they took me downstairs and I spoke with the detective, and he said that auto suicide is extremely rare in Colorado, or really anywhere, very hard to um, determine that it, it really was, and if they, have any inclination that there's ever been any change of mind, example, skid marks, they can't rule in an auto-suicide. And Leroy had 69 feet of skid marks, for one thing. And um, he's, he just went and he said, you know, the other two cases, um, they had had other attempts, they have left notes, they had been exhaustly in, uh, interviewed with the family, um, they had, you know, reams of paperwork on them, and they really were autosuicides. My brother's was one page, about half filled out, and, and with that, about half of that was incorrect. They had the wrong car down, um, they had, it was in a high school, um, you know, they had the wrong time down. So he said, there's just no way. And he says, and I asked him, well, what should I do? And he says, you really should um, hire a private investigator to go out and, and solve this. It is not an auto-suicide. Well, I couldn't afford to do that. And so my husband and I started going out on our own and were shocked at really the data that I was coming up with. We gathered that for about two weeks and then I took it to um, Boulder to um, the DA's office and they said, it was definitely enough to reopen the case, but they had to send me to Weld County for it to get reopened. So that took me to Weld County, and they did reopen it at that time. So then was it, was it Weld County then that made the decision to exhume uh, Leroy's body and have an autopsy done, or was that your decision? It was my decision and my family's. Um, Weld County um, investigated it for about two weeks and came back to me and said, you know, we completely believe you, we completely agree with you, we think this was a murder, um, 
unfortunately we don't have the body or you know haven't found an eyewitness to be willing to talk at this point and so at this point you know there's really not much more we can do without a body and you know of course I asked them if they wanted to exhume it and they didn't so um, we spent about a month deciding and then we hired uh, Patrick, Dr. Patrick Allen to exhume the body. Was that a hard decision? Yes, but, and especially because now I am speaking about this to my mother. You know, it is coming back into the family. And um, it really, one thing that she said to me that really stood out was that she felt like she had let him down in life and she had let him down in death. Because, you know, in all of our hearts, we knew he had not committed a suicide and she felt really guilty that it was that way. So she was at the point now where, you know, I'll back you, you know, and she let me go ahead and, and do this. In 1993, more than 25 years after Leroy's death, his body was exhumed and taken to Dr. Allen, a highly respected forensic pathologist for an autopsy. And what he found was shocking. A four inch slice in Leroy's lower neck that he did not believe was consistent with a car crash injury. In his report, Alan wrote that Leroy's death should be investigated as probable foul play. Okay, so you get the autopsy report from Dr. Allen, and it attributes his death to injuries from the car accident, but it says that he has this wound in the neck that doesn't appear to have been caused by the car accident, and he concludes that it was that it was a cutting injury, a, a probably a of a kni- knife, a knife inflicted injury, and he speculates that your brother had been attacked and was probably losing a lot of blood and may have even, I think he said, lost consciousness, and then right. the crash occurred. Right. What was it like to get that news? Oh, it it was fantastic. I I was so elated to have someone in authority. Um, coming back and saying to me, you know, what we felt and knew and really acknowledging, you know, the situation. And I, I really, um, I was elated about it, but I was also apprehensive about it. So I said to him and he, Dr. Allen said, I told you that if there was anything foul play, I had to inform the police. He says, which I have talked to Weld County and um, he said, I'm going to have a meeting with them on Friday. And I said, I want to be there because I wanted to hear for myself that someone with such credentials would be saying the same thing to the authorities that they had just said to me. So I was, even though I was elated, I was still cautious, you know, because I had just had so many stops before from the authorities. So I was like, you know, nervous. And I went ahead and he said I could come and I went to the meeting. That meeting occurred between Dr. Allen and a Weld County detective named Tony Malosnik. At that time, how would you characterize how hopeful you were that you were going to get a resolution, like literally an arrest or charges filed or a determination that there was a suspect? Oh, I was very hopeful. Um, You know, at that meeting, Tony and Dr. Allen were going back and forth, and um, Tony finally said to him, you know, what do you, me- you expect me to do with this? And Dr. Allen said, if you're asking me what I can do with it, I can get on a stand and say his throat was cut before the accident. 
And, and I thought, this was amazing. This is going to help. You know, there's a light of fire under the detectives. They're going to go out. They're going to interview, you know, pertinent people who were all alive, who were all in the same community almost, very close anyway. And I really thought they were going to come out and, you know, genuinely try to solve this case. After the autopsy and the determination that Leroy's death likely began with a knife attack, Vicki and her family members worked to spread the word, hoping someone would come forward with information. I believe that Leroy was involved in an argument that night. Someone slit his throat. My brother tried to flee for help, but lost consciousness and hit the tree. Before help could arrive, my brother bled to death. We all deserve to have the truth come out. We all deserve justice. That's Vicki in 1994 talking to reporters in Mead, near the home her brother drove away from moments before his fatal crash. Leroy's case was the subject of numerous news stories. It was even featured on Unsolved Mysteries. And then, eventually, the investigation went cold. So cold it was no longer listed on unsolved cases in Weld County records. So now, more than 20 years later, that investigation has been sort of, what, what would you say, up and down, periods when there was activity, long periods where not much happened? How, how would you characterize the passage of the years since then? There was activity during that time for a few more years, and then it went stagnant, and I mean cold. No, worse than cold, because it wasn't even listed on the cold case. So although all this work with the um, forensic and investigations, unsolved mysteries, people and interviewing, although all that happened, they um, still didn't, they changed the death certificate and I thought for sure it would always stay open and as you know, it was now undetermined, but they didn't. The case wasn't even open. It was not even a cold case. And I don't understand how you can be you know, cause of death is undetermined and that it's not even a cold case. So I was, I've been very disappointed until recently, about a year and a half ago, and it has come back to light. And, you know, there was a, a caller that called in and has really sparked it. The new detective that's working on it now seems to be trying pretty hard. And he said that when the caller came to him about this murder, that he was like, no, we don't have a murder. And the caller said, yes, you do. You know, in Mead, Colorado in 1968, Leroy Dreith. And he's like, the detective's like, we don't have a case. There was, and so they had to hunt in their files to even find that there was a case. I found that very disheartening. And at the same time, I assume hopeful that it's being looked, being looked at again today. Exactly. Me too. And they tell me they are. They um, have done some work I know on it. And I know that um, there's, there's a good possibility. And I know what his um, hope is. You know, they do hope that there's going to be some arrest. And they do hope now that the people that are still alive and involved are going to be brought to justice. And they continually give me hope and, um, you know, don't patronize me or say, you know, it's, it's been too old, you know, you should forget about it, we may not ever be able to solve it. They don't really say that. They do say to me, we are going to get these guys and we are going to pursue this. There's 
It seems like it's taking a lot of time, but I'm very hopeful that that's going to happen. Do you ever, during those long periods when it was stagnant or worse than stagnant, did you ever wonder to yourself, like, was it worth it to go, go down this road and only get so far and not be able to? Um, no, I always thought it was worth it. I, my thoughts were always, I, I became somewhat angry at the authorities that they were doing you know, such an inept job. And I knew that if they were doing that with my case, it's happening in other cases, and I, I just felt frustrated that, you know, I didn't spark a better turnaround in the, in the police department, you know. Um, but I was, I was always glad and thankful that this all came out because it healed my family. Um, my mother, you know, we have pictures hanging of him in our house now. We do talk about him. Um, you know, she feels like he did get some justice when the death certificate was changed to undetermined. You know, so those things were very important. And, and I actually felt like um, a big relief from Leroy had left once, once the death certificate was changed. It was really um, freedom for me in a way. So, you know, I'm very happy for that. I'm not happy that um, you know, the people that committed a crime don't even get talked to or, you know, they haven't paid for this crime. They haven't had to slow down life at all for this crime. And I, you know, I'm not very happy about that. Can you tell me what your thoughts are about the system in Colorado that existed in 1968 and really still exists today that, that allows a county coroner who may have very little medical training to make such important decisions in the, in the first hours after a death about how that's investigated, whether or not there's an autopsy, for example. Well, I'm, I couldn't believe it back, you know, when I was doing all this investigation and that, you know, the detective said to me, we agree with you, we think there's been a murder. Um, all I can say is we goofed you know, we, they actually said we botched the job. And he said, but what I can tell you is that it's different, you know, that was in 1968, this was in the 90s, and how Colorado had progressed. You know, you didn't have to have any medical degree, you didn't have to, you didn't even really have to know the body correctly, you know. I mean, there's, there was no requirements for a coroner. And I was irate at that to think that you're telling me this is better. To be a coroner in Colorado, you have to be a U.S. citizen, live in the county where you serve, undergo a fingerprinting background check, and take annual training courses. They had no one overseeing them. At any given time, less than 10 of Colorado's 64 coroners are medical doctors. Fewer still are forensic pathologists with the credentials to perform autopsies. So I was trying to go in and change the law for a dual system where each case could be seen by the coroner, but then it would have to be signed off by a medical doctor uh, so that they could kind of oversee each other, you know, and two eyes, you know, would make a, a, a better stance on it that they could tell if there was a, an, an issue that needed dealt with more. That effort did not go very far. It did not go very far. Uh, it was quickly shot down. 
State legislator Rhonda Fields undertook a similar effort in 2011. Fields, whose son and his fiancée were gunned down before he could testify in a murder trial, sought a law that would study Colorado's coroner system, which has its roots in the formative days of the state. She had the idea of instituting a measure putting forensic pathologists in charge of the system for determining cause and manner of death. Fields' bill was shot down despite the support of Doberson, then in his fifth term as Arapahoe County Coroner. Do you sense that there's much appetite for? Unfortunately, not from my experience. When I was the coroner, I had <clears throat> made a number of attempts with uh, some, some of our uh, elected officials, not, not the least of which whom is uh, Rhonda Fields, a uh, representative from Aurora. And we had tried to put together, um, uh, and this is based on what a coroner had found doing a financial analysis of the coroner system. We had tried to put together um, a working group uh, to sit down composed of coroners and again law enforcement and, and other individuals in the medical legal community. And uh, we were, this was at the beginning of Representative uh, Fields' uh, tenure at, in, in the House and she was frankly shocked of the the power that the coroners had. The coroners were against it and just jumped on it with both feet and basically had the support of those in the hearing and, and this work group never really got off the ground, which I think would have been very instructive. Uh, it certainly wasn't meant to, um, wasn't meant to um, uh, do away with the present system that we have. It's simply a, was a, an opportunity to look at what we have and try to figure out if it's working or not. But apparently the coroners, the Colorado Coroners Association, wanted nothing to do with that, which, which I found it, it's very sad. Overall, if you look at what's happening in the United States, um, most of the population is governed by a medical examiner system. And a medical examiner system essentially is that there is a physician, hopefully a forensic pathologist, who is in charge of the office that has jurisdiction over a certain area. And that's, that's the specialty that's, that's trained to carry out death investigations. Um, it's, it's really surprising. A, a lot of times I'll get in conversations with people and they ask me what I do or what I used to do. And I tell them that I was the coroner for Arapahoe County. And they may be from a, another county and they, usually the comment is, what do you mean you don't have to be a doctor to be a coroner? And, and that's kind of the sad truth here in Colorado is that we have a relatively antiquated system and um, we have people that are not medically trained doing death investigations and um, mistakes will happen. And I, I think the case that we just spoke about is a good example of what can go wrong if someone doesn't have the proper credentials and training and, uh, and willingness to carry out the job in a rigorous manner.
Colorado's coroner's law has been amended twice in recent years. Training is more extensive now, and coroners are required to follow the National Association of Medical Examiners guidelines on when to order an autopsy. But the power to actually do it still rests solely with the individual county coroners, something the Boulder County coroner didn't do when Leroy Dreith died, something the Lincoln County coroner didn't do when Jill Wells died. Just how individual are those decisions? When Jill's husband, Mike Wells, died in 2008, in a case where there was no sign of foul play, the Teller County coroner did order an autopsy. Next time on Blame. Do you have a theory on what went down that day? Whether it's a public official. Yeah, I, this is my opinion. Fifteen years have gone by. What do you think now? Or Jill Wells' closest friends? I think just the opposite of what I thought then. I mean, what do you think? Or Jill's sisters? Oh, I, th I think he did it. Everyone who has looked at this case has an opinion about who is really to blame. Blame is a production of KUSA-TV, Nine News, and Tegna Media. Nicole Vapp is executive producer. Anna Houston is the producer and editor, and I'm investigative reporter Kevin Vaughn. Find photographs, police reports, maps, and other evidence on 9news.com slash blame.